how not to wander off. Um, you may remember I talked about Joshua Harris. He's a famous preacher in the States. Um, famous Christian author as well. Very well known in evangelical circles who has just left the faith. Um, I know this is probably shocking to some of you, but if you've been around the church very long, it's not shocking. This happens all the time. Uh, professed Christians just walk away. Uh, they decide that for whatever reason, uh, Jesus Christ is not important to them anymore. The church is not important to them anymore. They don't really care what the biblical message is. They just they decide to go with the wisdom of the world. So, how not to wander off? As I thought about what we talked about last time we were together, how not to wander off? Again, um, verses 5 through 10 of chapter 3 buttress that so well that I just decided that's what we would do tonight is look at verses 5 through 10. We saw last time we were together five weeks ago, the Apostle Paul says in verse 1, If then you have been raised up with Christ, of course that's a big if, right? It's a big if. How do we know we've been raised up with Christ? How do we know? How can we have assurance? What does 1 John tell us? How can we have assurance? Because the priest told us we could. No. Because the preacher told us we could. No. Because I prayed the magic prayer. Because I did the proper ordinance. None of that is the right answer. What's the right answer? How, do, how can I have assurance? 1 John. It's in my life. I actually have a relationship with Jesus. I actually know Him. I actually love Him. Love Him, and I'm proactively obeying Him. This is assurance. And I, I don't have a problem telling people as I counsel with them if they may be in gross sin or um, neglecting to, to meet with the body of Christ or whatever the issue is in their life that, that makes a counter-argument to the fact that they profess to be Christians. I don't have a problem with saying to them, Right now, your life betrays your profession of faith. You have every reason to question your profession of faith. Joshua Harris never questioned his profession of faith. He just decided one day, I'm out of here. We, we don't really understand all the dynamics there, but we know it has always happened. This has always happened. This has never not happened. People who profess to love God just leave God. At some point, maybe there's a crisis. Maybe there's a tragedy. Um, maybe there's just the thought that there's more pleasure in the world than there is in God, which we obviously know is false. So how can we be assured that we won't wander off like Joshua Harris and like countless others? Well, if, if Colossians 3, 1 and 2, and then 5 through 11 pardon me, 5 through 10 are true of us, we have some reason to have assurance. Back to verse 1 of Colossians 3. If then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above. So I just ask you, is that your priority? I'm seeking the things above. That's what my life is. That's what my life looks like. I'm seeking the things above. Yes, I know we need many things that are here upon the earth, but my preeminent uh, pursuit is 
my relationship with God. I mean, this is not complicated. It's not complicated. Somewhere, Joshua Harris left off pursuing God. We don't, we don't know exactly where that happened. He probably doesn't know exactly where that happened. He left off. He professed to know Christ. He never truly did. You know, I want to make sure we understand nobody ever loses their salvation. This never happens biblically. You can't, once you have it, you can't lose it. The question is, do you have it? That's always the question from a biblical perspective. So, Paul is going to make the argument here about our sanctification. Seek the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things of the earth. How can I have assurance? Because this is true. I do think about... You know, we talked about it, was it last week or several weeks ago? We do think about heaven. The lukewarm never think about heaven. They never think about heaven. Ever. They never think about it. The true believer does think about it. The true believer is looking forward to it. The true believer in, in many ways can't wait to get there. They can't wait. So we're going to be talking about sanctification. It's a big word. What does it mean? It means that the born-again believer grows in holiness. So I can ask you, you say, Jim, how can I have assurance? Do you see holiness in your life? Are you growing in holiness? It doesn't mean that we can't have seasons of sin. It doesn't mean that, that we don't have dry times in our lives. Certainly we do. We know many of, of God's great men and women had seasons in their lives. But the born-again believer will persevere. We will persevere. God is going to bring us into conformity with Jesus. That's what sanctification means. So in Christ, we're justified and God is working sanctification. Positionally, we are justified. We are just before God in Christ, right? God, sanctification is a process through which God is making us holy. And here's the deal. You're called to cooperate with God in this, right? One thing we'll see tonight. You know Romans 8.29. God says, For whom He foreknew... He also predestined to what? Become conformed to the image of His Son. Sanctification in the believer's life, and I've been a believer for a long time, I can, I can tell you that this is true. If you're born again, you understand that this is true. It can be a slow, messy, and uneven process. Why is it a slow process? Why, is Saint, why doesn't God just make us holy? Well, there may be a lot of ways to answer that question. But one way to answer the question is, <laughs> I think you'd get proud. I think you'd be a Pharisee. I'm pretty sure I would. I think we'd get proud. Also, um, God wants us to never forget that He is our salvation, not our righteousness, because we have no righteousness. If we're Bible believers, we have no righteousness apart from God, apart from the finished work of Jesus. We have no righteousness. We must have God. We must have God. This is part of the reason 
that the sanctification process is slow and long. It is a lifetime. So you never forget. You have, you, you have to have God every morning that you wake up. If we read our Bibles, sanctification, uh, we understand, is, a, is yet another example of God's sovereignty in the believer's life in conjunction with the believer's responsibility to exercise His will. You guys know the famous verse. I love this verse. Sovereignty, responsibility, right? Philippians 2, 12 and 13. God says, work out your salvation. Oh, you're one of mine? Work it out. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. This is no passive thing. True Christianity is no passive thing. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling for what? God is at work in you. God's at work in you. Do you see see holiness in your life? Well, that didn't come from you. That came from God. (laughs) Right? God is at work in you to both will and to work His good pleasure. Right? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Pleasure. I love what MacArthur says about this verse. I always share it with you when I read Philippians 2, 12 and 13. He's saying that the believer must work out what God has worked in. If you're not working out what God has worked in, you have every reason to question the salvation that you profess to have. You must be working out what God has worked in. It's not complicated. The whole Bible is making this point. If it's real... Everything has indeed changed. I love how Eugene Peterson paraphrases Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Listen to what he says. Be energetic energetic in your life of salvation, reverent and sensitive before God. That energy is God's energy, an energy deep within you. God Himself willing and working at what will give Him the most pleasure. What gives God the most pleasure in your life? What is it? There's obviously a number of ways to answer that question. What I want to say to you is when you genuinely delight in Him. When you really delight in Him. I'm not just doing religious uh, activity. I'm not just, you know, this is not just heart dead, brain dead stuff. I actually love God. I actually delight in God. I delight in God in how I love my wife. I delight in God in how I give my money. I delight in God in how I raise my kids. I delight in God in how I do my job. I delight in God. It's all about God. It's always about Jesus. Jesus is always the point for the true believer. Jesus is always the point. It doesn't matter what sphere of life you're uh, involved in, career, family, finance, whatever. I'm delighting in God in it. Beloved, this is an important question for us to always keep in mind. So God has called you to cooperate with Him in your sanctification. How do you keep from wandering off? How do you keep from being Joshua Harris? Well, you seek the things above. And you cooperate with the Holy Spirit in your sanctification. This is not passive. It's never Christianity is not passive. We're not navel gazers. It doesn't happen by osmosis. 
We're laying our hands on it, as Paul told Timothy. Lay your hands on it, the eternal life that God has given you. Lay your hands on it. Right? It's what God has called us to. So on a good day, when I find more obedience in my life than disobedience, when I find more love for God in my life than love of self, when I find uh, more of that stranger in exile uh, mentality in my life than being absorbed in the things of the world, on that day I rejoice in who I am becoming in God. I'm seeing God at work in me. Listen, you know this is true. I don't know when you were converted. I was converted as an older man at, ver- at age 28. I see the difference. <laughs> Everybody in my life saw the difference. Some people left. They didn't like the difference. The difference will happen. Now, you know, if you were quite young, it's not quite as dramatic. Um, But these things are still true. I see God has changed me. I didn't change me. I didn't do it. God did it. I can rejoice. What about those not-so-good days when there's more disobedience than obedience, when there's more love of self on display than love of God, when I seem to be far too too comfortable with this world? On a day like that, as a true believer, I can ultimately rejoice. Why? Why can't I rejoice even on on a challenging day? What does God say? What is His promise? Philippians 1, 6, what is it? I will finish what I started in you. What is our assurance? The promise of God. It's not any religious thing I've done. It's the promise of God. That's my assurance. And I see His Spirit at work in me. My life has changed. My thoughts have changed. Right? This is our assurance. C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity, after the first few steps in listen to this, after the first few steps in the Christian life, we realize that everything which really needs to be done in our souls can be done only by God. If you've been a Christian very long and you're biblically literate to, to any degree, you realize this is all about God. Salvation is all about God. <laughs> it just is. He is sovereign, but you are responsible. You must exercise your will. George MacDonald was a famous 19th century Scottish minister, and he was famous for his stories and parables. And he likened sanctification to, to the prospect of a house that needed to be refurbished. Orazio can, can relate. Um, and so we're not surprised that the contractor comes in and he, fixed the, he fixes the leaky faucet. It needs to be done. He's not surprised that he comes in and fixes, fixes the leaky roof. It needs to be done. He's not, you're not surprised that he, he fixes the, the, the step that's unsafe at the, at the front porch. It needs to be done. We get it. All of that needs to be, go, be done. But we are surprised when God begins to raise the whole building. He's not going to come, as McDonald says, He's not going to come in and make you a cute little cottage. He's going to come in and tear you to the ground and build you back up into a palace. You know why He's going to build a palace? Because He's going to live there. He's going to live there. 
beloved. <laughs> yeah, Christianity's radical, man. <laughs> it's radical. He's not just going to dust you off a little bit. He's going to radically change you because He's going to take up residence inside your life. We are, as the Scripture says, we are the temple of God. This is not a refurbish. This is a raise and rebuild. This is sanctification. I think that's a very, very good parable. And here's the deal. God will settle for nothing less than you being conformed into the image of His Son. He will settle for nothing less. I think this is why people walk off. People don't mind a little Christianity as long as it's not too invasive. You understand what I'm saying? As long as it doesn't require too much of me. As long as I don't have to be too countercultural so my friends leave me, critique me, hate me, persecute me. Right? But God will settle for nothing else than you being just like Jesus. Do we ever achieve that in this life? Of course not. We're, we never achieve perfection in this life, but we are moving in this direction. It's called sanctification. That's what it is. So the Bible teaches us, as Paul makes the point, if those of you who are not familiar with Colossians, Paul just makes the point, you know, God saves His people. God saves His people. It's not legalism or asceticism or mysticism or any other kind of ism. God saves His people. God is adequate to save His people. He does this. Then He calls us. He calls us to obedience. So, I've read the first few verses there. Let's pick up here in verse 5, Colossians chapter 3. We, we, we talked about this last time we were together. The Holy Spirit always, he always uh, lays the doctrinal foundational foundation down for us. And then He says, this is what I want you to do with it. So that's the part we're in. We're in the application part of Colossians. Verse 5, Therefore, what? Therefore what? If you are in Christ, if you're seeking the things above, if you've set your mind on the things above, not on the things of the earth, therefore, verse 5, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is on account of these things that the wrath of God will come. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Verses 5-8. through eight. You may remember five weeks ago as we looked at the first few verses of chapter 3 of Colossians, I brought you to Luke 9.23. What does Jesus say there? If anyone wishes to come after Me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow Me. Now, what did His disciples understand when Jesus said these words? What did they understand? Without, without any confusion or reservation, what did they understand? They knew what it meant to pick up a cross. What does it mean? It means the death of a man. What is Jesus saying? You must die to yourself. What is God calling us to when He tells us to die to ourself? What is God calling us to? I'm just going to give it to you, man. I was going to say this to the end, but I'm just going to give it to you. Right? 
What is God calling us to when He calls us to die to self? He's calling you to die to death. That you might be made alive to life. Okay? This is what the Gospel does. This is what Christianity does. No other religion on the face of the planet can make such an offer. But God makes the offer. He makes the offer that we would die to death. This is what He's calling us to. Dying to death and being made alive to life. There is a death involved for the real Christian. There's a death involved. But what else is, what else is involved? You have to know this. You, this. you should know this. What else is involved? What is Christianity all about? The resurrection. Right? He came out. He came out. You, you do die to yourself, but you're resurrected anew. You're resurrected anew. Paul understood this. Listen to some of the things he said. 1 Corinthians 15.31 Paul says, I die every day. Right? Galatians 6.14 Paul says, The world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Galatians 2.20 Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Beloved, this is all sanctification. All of this is sanctification. I'm putting to death the deeds of the flesh. Am I perfect? No. But I'm moving on with God. I am cooperating with God and my own sanctification. So Paul got this. And this is not some morbid, dark, gloomy, religious thing that uh, Paul's talking about again. He's calling us to die to death. If you still love the world, you're still dead. If you still love your sin, you're still dead. If you find the world more interesting than you find God, you're still dead. Romans 8.13, God says, For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Romans 8.5, For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit of life, uh, pardon me, mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. It's sanctification, beloved. He's calling us out of death and into life putting down the sin, and picking up righteousness. It's what He's calling us to in the text. I think if we've really understood what God is saying to us in this regard, we might get a little more serious about our Christian faith. We might get a little more serious about how we live out in the world in the testimony that we're giving to our families and friends and colleagues by the very way that we do live. Of course, we all know as Christians, if we are a Christian, that this is a a titanic struggle, right? This is not easy. (laughs) Your flesh wants what your flesh wants. You guys know the great text, Romans chapter 7. Listen to what Paul says. Paul says, "I'm, 
I'm not practicing what I would like to do, but I do the very thing I hate. It is the sin which indwells me. For the good I wish I do not do, but, the, but I practice the very evil that I do not wish. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wishes to do good. For I concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in my members uh, of my body waging war against the law of my mind. We all know if we're Christians, we're in a war. We're in a sanctification war. You don't wake up every morning wanting to be holy. And Karen, I've been talking a lot about this lately. You, you guys are smart people. You know this. If you're not in the Word, you will have no taste for it. You will have no taste for holiness if you're not looking at God. If you're not proactively looking at God in the Word. You'll have no desire for it. You'll have no taste for it. You'll have no motivation for it. And if you're not in the Word, you will wander off. Mark it down. If you're not a student of the Scripture, you will ultimately walk off. I can guarantee that. If you're not a student of the Word, you will walk off. If you're simply living on the fragments of what your teacher, your priest, your pope, your uh, patriarch, your evangelical pastor has to say if you're just living off the you know the uh, if you're a, as piper calls it a second hander if you're just a second hander you'll wander off if you're not eating the word and being changed by the power of the spirit through it you will wander off this is a fight <clears throat> it is a fight you need to know you're in a fight i think all of you know that we know that God's solution is an inside-out solution. It's a Holy Spirit. It's, 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 it's that circumcision without hands, right? It's that circumcision of the heart. It's the work that God does. God does that heavy lifting work. And then we are called to cooperate. We are called to obey. So we praise God for our salvation, of course. But we praise God for our sanctification because we can't do it. We can't do it. I think I shared with you a few weeks ago, uh, and I think it's powerful, from one of the best preachers in probably, well, at least in the history of America, John Piper says, you know, pardon me, John MacArthur says, if, if I could lose my salvation, I would lose it within the hour. This is how much you need God. <laughs> this is how dependent you and I are on God. You need to, you need to own this intellectually. And you need to own, own it practically. So the sins listed here uh, in verses 5 and 8 are obviously not exhaustive, but they do underscore the reality of sin in our lives in general. Every faculty of man is and can be sinful. We know what Jesus says in Mark chapter 7. Man's heart is the problem. <laughs> it's that which flows from the heart. It's an inside-out problem. It's an inside-out problem. God is changing the heart and God is calling you to obey Him to give evidence of the change in heart. If you look there at that... Um, where is it? The last, the last sin listed in verse 5 is greed, which the King James translates covet. Covet is the 
the basic sin of all sin. It's desiring something more than you desire God. Right? That's the context in which it's used. It's desiring something that God has forbidden and it's desiring something... It may be legitimate, but you happen to desire, let's say, marriage. I desire marriage more than I desire God. I desire money more than I desire God. I desire sexual gratification more than I desire God. I desire position more than I desire God. I desire comfort and ease uh, more than I desire God. That's covetousness. And we know that this is a great insult to God. What does it mean to covet? The dictionary says, <clears throat> calls it this. The dictionary calls it a blameworthy desire. A blameworthy desire. It's like I said, it could be legitimate. It's not illegitimate to want to be married and have kids. That's not illegitimate. It's illegitimate if you want it more than you want God. It's illegitimate. It's covetousness. And it's an insult to God. It is the root of idolatry, as the text says here. So sin is the suicidal exchange of infinite value and beauty for some fleeting, sugar-coated, inferior substitute. That's John Piper's definition of sin. So how do we fight covetousness? How would you fight covetousness? If you find covetousness in your heart, how would you fight it? Uh, John MacArthur, famous preacher in the States, he says we fight it with contentedness. Are you content in God? Are you content in your lot in life? Are you content with the countless blessings He continues to pour upon you that you never thank Him for? We're all thankless in some... It, it's only a matter of degree. All of us are thankless in the sense that we don't spend enough time reminding ourselves of simply how good God is. We're worried, as I always tell you, about the three or four things that aren't perfect. And we like to complain about those things. Quickly, verse 6. These, on account of these things, these sins, the wrath of God will come. So, we understand, if we're Bible believers, that God hates sin. Psalm 7.11, He's angry with the wicked every day. Psalm 5.5, 5, He hates all who do iniquity. Deuteronomy 32.41, God says, I will render vengeance to all who hate Me. Uh, I'm, I'm writing this book on God's wrath. And I noticed 124 times uh, in relation to God's judgment, the word wrath is used. This is no isolated... Um, what's the word I want? This is no isolated occurrence. This happens over and over and over again. The word wrath used in conjunction with God's judgment. I won't belabor this. We'll come back to it in a couple of weeks. But I love A.W. Pink, famous theologian, what he says about, about the eternal wrath of God. You know, some people say, well, it can't be eternal, man. How can God's wrath be eternal? Sin is temporal. Well, we know there are two answers to that question. God is eternal. You've sinned against an eternal being, so the judgment must be eternal. Also, the sin, the sin never stops in hell. It, 
the sinner still hates God in hell. Sin never stops. So, it is eternal. I love what A.W. Pink says. Why then should you not suffer wrath as great as the love and grace which you have rejected? So God says, on account of these sins, my wrath will come. Verse 7, He says, but it's not like that for the true believer. We, we are pursuing God. We have exchanged junk for God. The unbeliever has exchanged God for junk. We want God. It's an assurance of our salvation that we, that we truly do. You guys know the famous verse, Ephesians chapter 2, you were dead in your sins, but what? You know the famous verse, right? You got, if you don't know Ephesians 2, uh, you got to know this. You were dead in your sins, but what? Why are you no longer dead in your sins? Because you figured it out, you wanted to be a good little boy, a good little girl, you sorted it all out, and you decided you would come to God all on your own. What does the text say? You were dead in your sins, but God made you alive. God has made us alive. Again, we're back to sovereignty. We are back to sovereignty. So, God says, My kids no longer walk in death. They walk in life. This is your assurance, beloved. This is your assurance. That you're walking in life. This is our assurance. God is saving His people from eternal death and He has given us eternal life. Verse 8 says, um, you are no longer in the default mental state of fallen man. You put these things aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. You've put these things aside. This is another assurance that you belong to God. You've You've got your anger under control. Right? Do we, have, do we all uh, feel anger welling up in us sometimes? Of course we all do. I know I do. Sometimes it's righteous. Sometimes it's not so righteous. Then it's a sin before God. I need to cooperate in my own sanctification. I need to learn to control myself and suppress the anger. Usually when you know, usually what anger is about is yes, there is such a thing as righteous indignation, but usually for a human being, what anger is normally about is I'm mad at my circumstance, which is a backhanded way of what? Being mad at God. <laughs> because God's in charge of your circumstance. God is sovereign. If you're mad about circumstance, you're backhandedly mad at God. It's just logic. It's just common sense. So we have our, our heart disposition has changed. You guys know what Galatians 5, 22 and 23 say. We now have the fruit of the Holy Spirit. We now have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Let's finish with verses 9 and 10. Paul says, Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self. There it is again, right? We put on the new self who is being renewed 
to a true knowledge according to the image of Jesus who created Him. Jesus is the Creator. The One who created us, that's Christ. We lay aside the old self. There was this practice in the early church where someone who was being baptized, they would take off all of their old clothes and burn them. They would be given a clean robe. They would be baptized. And that was their new clothing. It was all symbolic, right? They put to death. They put it off. They, they put off their old self and put on the new self. This was quite prevalent in the early church. God says, I will complete the good work I've begun in you. God says, then you are to lay aside. What does He say? You are to lay aside the old and put on the new. This is another assurance of your salvation. That you are actively engaged in doing this. It echoes Ephesians 4, 22-24. Lay aside the old self. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which is the likeness of God. So if we're not co- cooperating with the Holy Spirit, we're just playing religion with God. As we have often said, this is a stench in His nostrils. So how do we cooperate How are we proactive? Listen, I can tell you. I've told you this many times. I'm a preacher because I'm weak. i got to have the Word of God, man. i got to have it. And I'm thankful that it's my job. I'm very thankful that it's my job. I've got to have it. I've got to have the Word of God. It it reminds me of Psalm 119. I'm just going to read a few excerpts. The psalmist says, I understand more than the aged. Why? Because I observe God's precepts. I have restrained my feet from every evil way that I may keep your word. I have not turned aside from your ordinances, for you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste. Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. From your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. God's word is our fuel for living out our sanctification, for cooperating with the Holy Spirit. I just want to say it. I just want to say it. You've got to be a student of the Word. And if you're not, I, I challenge you tonight to drive a stake in the ground and make a decision. I'll be in God's Word every day. And you find your tool. You find your resource. You find the way that works for you. I say this in love, beloved. This is non-negotiable. You will be emaciated and weak if you are not in the Word of God. To borrow Paul's words, I am to die daily to the old gym. So I'm asking you, are you dying daily to yourself? This is the instruction of God. This is the call of God. This is, this is evidence of, of, of justification. This is sanctification. Okay? God is pristinely clear. He saves His people. He's pristinely clear in Colossians and all through the New Testament. I save My people. And then He calls us to cooperate in that. How do you keep from wandering off? 
Colossians 3, verses 1 through 10. It's real. It's alive. You're cooperating with the Spirit. Let me just close with Philippians 2, 12 and 13. I've already read it to you, but let me close like this. Because this is sovereignty and this is responsibility. God says to His people, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Let's pray together.